Hey friend, when was the last time you listened to a podcast that told you everything you needed to know to break into or do your work in the field of continuing medical education and continuing education for health professionals? If it's been a hot minute, or like never, you've arrived at the right podcast. In fact, you've arrived at Right Medicine, a weekly podcast that explores best practices in creating content that connects with and educates health professionals. Are you feeling stuck in your work? Are you looking for inspiration from your peers? Are you looking for a way to break into this incredibly rewarding and intellectually satisfying field? Well, Right Medicine is here to offer you guidance and strategies as you navigate all phases of CME and CE creation. Every Wednesday, join me, Alex Housen, a medical writer specializing in CME and CE content creation, as I host thoughtful, provocative, and rich conversations with guests about adult learning, content creation techniques, effective formats in CME and CE, and trends in healthcare that influence the type of content we create. Right Medicine is here to motivate you to learn and grow as a CME and CE professional, wherever you are in the content creation process. If your work involves planning, designing, creating, delivering or evaluating education for health professionals. This podcast is for you. I'm here today with anesthesiologist, author and test pilot, Dr. David Alfrey, to discuss his book, Saving Grace, What Patients Teach Their Doctors About Life, Death and the Balance in Between, which was published by Whipf and Stock earlier in 2023. Even those of us who've had surgery probably haven't given much thought to the person who put us under and carefully monitored us while the surgeon did their work. A cardiac anesthesiologist, Dr. Alfrey reveals to readers of his book the critical role of the total stranger who takes them closer to death than they would ever come in this life and then brings them safely back. David's book explores the highs and lows of being an anesthesiologist including his personal experience during his daughter's surgery. In this episode, we explore the fears, aspirations, and motivations of health professionals and the sacred trust between a physician and their patient. Welcome, David. It's so good to see you here. And I see we've color-coordinated. Yes, I have. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to this. It's really good to have this opportunity to talk about your book, Saving Grace. So let's start by you telling listeners who you are and some of the work that you do. Well, I, uh, I was a cardiac anesthesiologist in private practice in Nashville, Tennessee. Had an unbelievably rewarding career, both because of the anesthesia that, that I did, but I did a lot of things sort of outside of the, the job. I went on mission trips. Uh, I was active in, uh, in education, in the state society. I was a board examiner for anesthesiologists, mm-hmm. becoming board certified. Just a really varied career. Really a blessed guy to have had the 36 years that I had. What drew you to anesthesiology? I wasn't so much drawn as led. Uh, I, was, uh, I was slated to go through the cardiac surgery program at the University of Kentucky. And it was just a brutal, brutal internship. And I'd had a, a month of every other night call where you'd work for about 
38 hours and then you'd go home for 10 hours. And uh, I was just so burned out. And I, I thought, I think I'll go into ER medicine. And the chief of anesthesia took me aside one day and he said, David, I understand you might be leaving surgery. And I said, yeah, I think, I think I'm going to go to ER medicine. And he said, you really ought to think about anesthesia and come see me in my office. And I saw him and talked about a, a half hour. And then a week later, I went back to him and I said, you know, I think I will try anesthesia. What you've, what you've said to me about the anesthesiologist being the ICU doctors of the OR is really intriguing. And he said, well, I, I know people. And he ticked off the cities where I knew the chairman. And I asked him about San Diego, thinking that the weather is pretty good there. And he said that they'd be <laughs> yes, built. And then later that day, he said he'd call. And then later that day, I got a message from his secretary, you're going to San Diego. So this was this monumental decision based upon a half hour conversation and the fact that the weather was good in San Diego. And it couldn't have turned out better. And what for, there's going to be a lot of listeners who possibly don't know what that idea of the ICU doctor of the OR means. Could you explain that a little bit? Yes. Anesthesia is one of the critical care specialties. And the thing about critical care is just people being critically ill. So the people that operate on critically ill patients, trauma surgeons, cardiac surgeons, the people that take care of them in the operating room, anesthesiologists, most pulmonologists are critical care doctors because they often run the ICUs. So it's any physician that's really involved with critically ill patients. Our job is a little bit unusual because not only are they often critically ill, but we are taking them literally closer to death than they'll ever come in their lifetime and bringing them back again. So it makes it a really exciting specialty. Let's talk about that a little bit. I, I remember, and we talked about this just before we hit record, I remember when I was training as an OR nurse and I worked in trauma for several years obviously with anesthesiologists, but I remember when I was training that feeling of anesthesiologists are, they're almost philosophers because they, they are so intimately in, acquainted with that space between life and death and the different layers between life and death. So I wonder if you could kind of walk us through the levels of anesthesia and, and how you see that journey from life almost to death and back again. Yeah, okay. Uh, classically, this is a, uh, described by a guy named Goodell, I think back in the 1930s. He described four levels or planes of anesthesia. Uh, level one is just like we are now, awake. Level two is as you're going to sleep, you go through this stage that's called excitement, where you, are, you won't remember anything that happened, but if you're stimulated, you might have abnormal response, like shutting your vocal cords, and, it, and now we can't breathe for you. So this stage of excitement as you go to sleep, you, you don't want to manipulate a patient. You certainly don't want to operate on them at that level. You go to stage three where you are deeply unconscious, and that's the, that's the stage of, uh, of surgical anesthesia where you can do any operation you like. And then stage four is just defined as too much. and obviously. Too much, too much, and you meet death. So we just take you to a state where you are deeply unconscious, uh, where you don't move, you don't feel, you don't remember. You have your operation, and 
we bring you back. And I, I liken it to a lot of people talk about it like flying an airplane. I liken mm-hmm. it to a submarine going down deep and then bringing you back to the surface. Yeah, you uh, San Diego obviously uh, got under your skin. You use a lot of marine uh, metaphors in your in your book. That's <laughs> good news. Right? <laughs> Are you a sailor? No, I'm not. Uh, but okay. uh, but San Diego was a jewel to to train at. When I left San Diego, right. everybody, everybody said the same thing. Nashville. They they could <laughs> not imagine leaving the jewel of California to go to the hick town Nashville. It's a different cultural vibe for sure, but very vibrant now in comparison perhaps to, you know, a few decades ago. It's one of the it cities now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to live, I'd go to school in the South, so I wanted to live in the South. Right, right. You talk about, well, I guess one of the themes in your book is that anesthesiology and cardiac anesthesiology in particular has taught you as much about living as it has about dying. Can you talk about that a little bit and what you mean? Yeah, that, and this is why I, the subtitle of the book is what patients teach their doctors about life, death, and the balance in between. You know, you go into medicine and, and you know, it's a joyful profession and you take care of people and you think that you're really imparting to them your skills and all the care that you give. But to my surprise, I learned so much from my patients, uh, the experiences that they shared with me, everything from uh, the sense of gratitude that I need to have for the life that I have, the perspective that it's given me, nothing better than being healthy. Uh, when you, you right. live with sick people, the, um, it's shaped my expectations. I really, I think all the things that make us human, that connect us in our shared humanity, they all occur in the doctor-patient relationship uh, in one form or another. One of the things that I find striking in in your book, uh, and that often strikes me when I read books written by physicians, and I say physicians in particular, is a sense of humility, in some contrast perhaps to surgeons. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> who 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 do kind of occupy often you know a larger than life space in the choreography of the operating room and it's always struck me that anesthesiologists don't do that precisely because they are in that space between life and death what's your experience of that you know i yeah i think that uh you know sometimes they talk about the surgeons you know they they eat their young uh, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, yeah. they often have pretty big personalities, and and I yes. think in a way you have to have a big personality to operate, because uh, let's take a cardiac mm-hmm. surgeon. You operate on someone that's a high risk patient, and they don't make it, and they die in the operating room. That's a mm-hmm. that's just a terrible burden that they've taken upon themselves. They had a patient who's alive four hours ago. And now I've got to go talk to the family. So I think, I think they kind of need a big personality, at least to be in the big surgical specialties. Anesthesiologists, I think, just in general, are a little mellower. You know, we, right. you, you certainly don't get any, any glory being an anesthesiologist. Uh, you know, you see the patient the day before. You may see them the day after. They'll never remember your name. So you, you've got to really get your satisfaction from the work that you do as opposed mm-hmm. to a lot of external praise. 
And it, maybe that makes us a little mellower. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair, a fair description. You just kind of touched on this a little bit, and you'd certainly talk about this in the book, the, the otherworldliness of seeing a chest cut open for the first time. And I, I know exactly what, what you mean yeah. by that. But you also talk about the sacred trust between a physician and uh, his or her patient. Can you dig into that a little bit for us? Sure. You know, that to me is the whole foundation of why it is joyful to have been a physician. Uh, You know, I've got a daughter who's a child psychiatrist, and I told her, Jana, in medical school, you're going to see the kids transition, and almost all of them will, where you go from uh, thinking that the patient is there for you to realizing that you're there for the patient, that it is a privilege what we do when patients put their trust in us and they actually put their lives in our hands. I mean, there, there could be no greater honor. So to be in that relationship uh, with a patient, and in our setting as an anesthesiologist, might be after 15 minutes that I'm going to bring them deeply unconscious and they trust me implicitly. It's just, it just gives you this wonderful bond with the patient, this almost holy trust that you're going to, by God, you're going to live up to that trust. Have you been in situations in your career where you've had to work really hard for that trust? Given the, the, the limitations of time that you have with patients, as you say, you see them before surgery, you see them after surgery, maybe Maybe sure. once. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, if a patient has had a, a bad experience uh, with the anesthesia uh, previously, or if they had multiple bad experiences, uh, just to try to reassure them that, you know, first of all, to listen to what that experience was. You know, so you know what you need to do to do your best to avoid it. I, you know, I think that uh, I think you have to be a personality that connects with people. And one of the things that I did anytime I saw a patient preoperatively, I always put my hand on their shoulder when I listened to their chest. And I always asked them a personal question about their life so that they realized that they were more than a number, more than a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just tried to have a human connection with them. And I think that goes a long way to trusting mm-hmm. the physician. I think if they like you, they're more inclined to trust you. Right. No like and trust. Those are, are, yeah, are no like trust. key elements. And I think, I can't remember, is it Robert Epstein, Joseph Epstein? There's an Epstein who's done a lot of work in this area in physician-patient relationships. I'll, I'll look that up and make sure to put that in the show notes as well. And you talk about placing your hand on, on patients. We, we know how important touch is yes. in terms of trust, although that can be a kind of double-edged you know, increasingly a double-edged challenge. And so that's what I wanted to ask about. Have you seen changes in the reception of trust by patients? I'm sorry, the reception of touch by patients. I I haven't seen the change, but I think I've been aware of it. I think everybody is so conscious of personal space that, you know, there's a you, you, of necessity, you have to be respectful and cautious. And um, I, to me, uh, I think if you get too cautious, it's, it's really at the detriment of the relationship. You know, there's, 
the, the idea of the laying on of hands in medicine is it goes back centuries. Yeah. And I think that if you lose that kind of connection, you're just that much farther away from a patient. Obviously, you've got to be careful how you touch them. And I'm in a position where I'm going to listen to your lungs. And it's just natural for me to sort of rest my hand on your shoulder. Mm-hmm. I think patients welcome that kind of connection. And when you're working with, or in, in the past, or you, you've worked as a board examiner, you're obviously an educator. When you're working with medical students or residents or fellows, and they're thinking about anesthesiology, what types of counsel or advice do you share with them as they're thinking through you know, that possibility? Well, I tell them it's a hard life. It's, you know, it has a reputation of, oh, gosh, you know, you work from seven to three and you go home. Well, I never worked from seven to three. I worked from six until seven. Uh, I mean, I worked really hard. And there's so many nights that you're up all night uh, and the weekend and the, and the holidays. It's a, it's a, a pretty grueling profession or specialty. Uh, so they need, to, they need to understand that this isn't a cakewalk. But I tell them it's, it's a specialty that they can use so much of what they've learned in medical school. You know, there's a lot of pharmacology. You're using physiology. You have to know anatomy because you're putting nerve blocks in and that type of thing. It's critical care medicine. It's the thought that it's 99% boredom and 1% sheer terror, which is what often uh, it's called, uh, is not exactly right. Uh, It's much more exciting than that. So really, it's, it's really demanding. But with those demands, there are incredible rewards. And such as? You know, you take a patient who's critically ill. And a lot of times in the operating room, what we're doing is resuscitating them, that they would be up in the ICU getting this resuscitation because they've come into the hospital fighting for their life. And now we're resuscitating them while they're being operated on. And if you can get them through that and and end up with that case with them far better than when you started, there's an enormous amount of satisfaction in that. And I think the other thing I say is working in the operating room, as you know, is such a magical place. Uh, right. the, the, the team that comes together, I just can't imagine as a physician, me working anywhere else than ending up in the operating room. I wanted to ask about that team component because you talk about this a little bit in the book and obviously teamwork is is a really important part of work in the OR and and teamwork is one of the things that I think everybody kind of increasingly talks about in relation to quality improvement and continuing education. It's got to be education for the team, by the team, and mm-hmm. so on. You know, you describe teamwork as as kind of magical. What, can you parse those components of the magic apart a little bit? Yeah, I I believe that the magic comes from the privilege of taking care of another human being. And that the nurses in the OR feel that every bit as much as the surgeon does and as the anesthesiologist does, that it is magical for someone to put their life or their health in our hands. What greater honor could a person have? Uh, And then 
understanding that in order for this machine to work in the operating room, all these little pieces have to fit together. You know, you've got to have the scrub nurse who's really skillful in, in handing the instruments and anticipating what the surgeon needs. The circulator may be scampering around the room, you know, taking care of my needs and now talking to the patient's family and now opening some sterile dressings and whatever other things that she needs to do or he needs to do. Mm-hmm. It's, just, it's just a lot of cogs in this machine, which are all sort of moving at the same time. It's almost like it's a, a breathing, living thing in the operating room. Mm-hmm. It's magical when you see it. And as you know, having worked in the OR. It's certainly a well choreographed team execution in in the OR is 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 a kind of magic in itself as as you say. This episode of Right Medicine is brought to you by Right CME Pro, a membership driven community that provides skills, scaffolding and support for medical writers who want to create CME content with confidence. Write CME Pro gives you access to expert perspectives to help you build your CME writing skills, a portfolio accelerator to hold space so that you can create stunning samples to show your prospects, group coaching to help you build foundational and expert knowledge in CME, and more. Write CME Pro is a community for people like you who are ready to grow their CME writing niche, or niche, if that's how you say it. See the show notes for more details. So I want to kind of get at the question of, you know, how that is learned and how that choreography can be taught. But but let me ask the question in a different way. Are there are there challenges in the the current uh, circumstances of what happens in operating rooms to that coordinated teamwork? Are there things, what are the things that get in the way? Uh, I think one of the major impediments today is the corporatization of medicine. The, the fact that everybody seems to be working for you know, a large entity and that entity has really one thing in mind and that is crank the cases through and generate more money. I think it's been a, a really unhealthy change in American medicine. So there's that, that pressure to, uh, to produce. I think that with that pressure to produce, people don't stay in their job very long. And there's a, mm. a huge amount of turnover in the operating room. And there's nothing like working with people over and over and over again to really work smoothly. Now, we all know our jobs and we can have locums come in and do these other jobs uh, and do them well, but not with the kind of smoothness that happens when you have a team that works together frequently. Mm-hmm. Now, I like that description of, of smoothness. It's the repetition. It's, it's almost the deliberate practice of doing something and having that engagement over over and over again. One of the things that we've seen in in some specialties, I'm thinking of oncology in particular, is the decrease in private practice. Is that something that's happening in anesthesiology as well? Uh, what's happening in anesthesia is that there are more and more national companies which are mm. uh, buying anesthesia practices. 
And the the thought that you've got a little, you know, six-person group or even a 50-person group, those are really going away. Uh, Just about everybody is getting bought by large entities. Mm. So part of that corporatization that that you you mentioned is happening with all specialties. (laughs) I think it's in every single specialty. So one of the things I think that makes your book unique, and I'm sure there are other things, and I definitely invite you to to share those is is the way that you share your own personal story of how you felt when your daughter was undergoing uh harrington rod surgery for mm. scoliosis can you talk a little bit about that experience and how that impacted you as a physician as well as as yes. a father uh, my daughter when she was 18 had what we call harrington rod instrumentation and that's the that's when you have scoliosis, you straighten the the spine with these rods put in posteriorly. And she had to have an anterior and a posterior procedure. So they opened her belly first and operated and then turned her over onto her back. And I had done that operation as an anesthesiologist many, many times. And I knew what the problems were and uh, had a really good team at Vanderbilt, very confident with them. And I had had an experience a couple of years earlier of a patient having a bleeding diathesis. It's called disseminated intravascular coagulopathy, or DIC. And the patient had almost bled to death on the table. And it was mm. a, a really a, a difficult experience for everybody, but we got the patient through. And I'd had DIC patients in the OR with other operations. And when my daughter was operated on, she did well for about eight or nine hours, and we were told that they were closing. And then the nurse came out and said, oh, there's been some bleeding, and um, we'll keep you informed. And then she disappeared, and she didn't come back when she was supposed to, to give us our update. And then she mm-hmm. still didn't come back. And it was clear to me that this bleeding was far more than something trivial. And in fact, she developed DIC. And wow. I found myself in the same position that every parent, every loved one is when somebody in the family is having something life-threatening. And all of the skills that I had, all the knowledge that I had, all the inside track that I had in medicine, they didn't help me at all. And I'd always felt that as a physician... I, I could navigate things much better because, you know, I know the system. I know the players. I know the diseases. None of that could help me. And it was just this feeling of utter helplessness. And I think it's one of those things in medicine. We empathize with our patients and we try to put ourselves in their position and imagine what it must feel like. But I think there are things that until you've experienced them yourself personally, you can't really get there. You can't really understand what it's like until you yourself experience it. Uh, fortunately, she lived through it, but uh, I think I had a new respect for patients' families and what they go through with a harrowing procedure. It's, I mean, it's without that added complication, it's a harrowing procedure. Yes. It really is. So I, I want to ask then, you know, and you touched on this. I mean, obviously, empathy is is hugely important for all health professionals. And learning, you know, cultivating and exercising empathy. Are there are there better ways of teaching 
empathy because we, we know that empathy is a skill. It can be learned. Are there better ways of teaching empathy in medical school and and beyond in, for instance, the continuing medical education context? What a wonderful question. You know, when I when I went to medical school, nothing was taught about empathy. Nothing was taught about how do you go to a patient's family when they have perished and give that news? Everything was picked up in terms of the the soft side of medicine. Uh, it was picked up from the people one step ahead of you or two steps ahead of you. Right. I know that in medical schools now, there's a much greater emphasis on uh, that aspect of medicine. So I think you can, you can emphasize it in medical school, but you cannot replace the essential ingredient, which is a person who is feeling. I think you have mm-hmm. to be a feeling person to begin with. And of all the criteria that you want in medicine with your students, man, you better be feeling. Obviously, you have to have the intellect to do what you're going to do, but you better bring the emotion with it as well, because these are real people that you're dealing with. And I don't think you can teach that. I think you, you, have, to, you have to understand that as a, you know, deep in your soul, or you're in the wrong business. Do you think medical school admission, admissions are getting better at selecting candidates who exhibit that feeling that you're talking about? Uh, I hope so. I hope so. You know, it, the the whole a DEI is very big now in all universities. It's in medical schools as well. It's very, very controversial among physicians because, you know, we know that there are people that have have been selectively at a disadvantage for years and years. But on the other hand, you want to have the very best candidates that you can have as in, in your training. And how do you reconcile the two of those? I don't have the answer to that, but I'm happy that they're asking the question. But you're hearing controversy among your peers and colleagues. I think especially among older doctors. Right. Because we realize that it's a tough job. I know at NYU, there's a... Um, there's the uh, organic chemistry teacher who was let go because the students were complaining that the the tests were too hard. And oh, I think I remember reading something about that. Yeah, yeah. There's a reason the tests are hard because they're weeding out people that can't do the work. And there's so much work. There's so much to be learned that I think you have to weed out people and. You know, I, I, the, the pilot who's landing the plane, I want that person to be the very best pilot I could get up there. Not somebody that had a really easy track and uh, not very good at flying an airplane, but let me have a go at it. Right, right. I, I, and I think I know that you use a, a submarine analogy for, for anesthesiology, but, but that's where the aviation kind of analogy comes back in. Every time you put a patient under, it's a huge test (laughs) because there are so many potential complications. 
Yeah, I'm so happy to hear you you say that. I uh, I've got to give a talk to the University of Tennessee department, and one of the things I want to tell the residents is: look, every day that you go to work in your career, that's a test, and you have to pass that test, and you want to do the very very best that you can at that test because you're dealing with another human being. Uh, don't ever think that you finished your residency. And you're done. You're not done until the day you finish. And so that does speak of a particular mindset and kind of opens up a question about how, as a practicing anesthesiologist, you handle and manage that space between life and death on a on a daily basis. And I know that you 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 know faith plays an important role in in your in your work. And you talk about prayer. In chapter eight, can, how has prayer evolved for you in your practice? And, and what, what, how does that help you do the work that you do? Yeah, it, it evolved in, a, in an amazing way. I, I grew up in an agnostic family, but my father also said, understand this, there is no God. So that was that version of agnostic. Not so agnostic then. <laughs> yeah. But I questioned why I was here when I was in my 30s and ultimately became a a Christian when I was 42. And I would pray for my patients when I rolled into the parking lot of the hospital. And I didn't know who I was going to take care of, but I would just pray for whatever patients I got, that I would do well, that they would do well. And uh, one day I had a a cardiac patient that his, uh, his pastor was with him. And they were saying something like, our whole church has been praying for, for him. And I said, well, I've already prayed for you today. And it was very comforting to that individual, but he did not do well with his surgery. And then about a week and a half after surgery, ended up dying in the ICU. And I, I really felt cheated in a way. I felt like, you know, God, didn't we have a, didn't we have a deal here? Or at least an understanding that you know, that he was going to do okay. And I realized that I was praying for my patients to do well. Well, there were far bigger forces at work and so much out of my control. And I just evolved my prayer then that I would just be able to do the very best job that I could, that my piece of the puzzle would be done as well as it could possibly be done. And whatever happened, I prayed that I would just be able to accept it. And as I, I say in the book, I rather than being on the, on, the, uh, on the results committee, I was on the work detail. And uh, so I guess at the end, they were as much a prayer for myself as they were for the patients. Do you think there's, well, let me think about this question for a moment. Healthcare has changed in the last, you know, 30 years. And we mm. talked about some of those changes in relation to touch and how challenging that can be in some circumstances. Do you think there is space for people to practice their, for health professionals to practice their faith in the context of healthcare delivery in, in today's climate? Yeah, I, I think that most faith is practiced personally. 
And I think that you can have your faith and bring it to your job and, and live your faith just as you do when you go to the grocery store. Maybe, you're, maybe part of your faith is just spreading love to the rest of humanity. And you can do that with the patient. You can do it with the person checking out the groceries. I think that we all have to be careful and respectful that we don't sort of inflict our faith on someone else. If, the, if it's something that they want to hear or want to see, uh, and, in a, and the best example of that would be somebody coming in with a pastor, and uh, often they would say, do you mind if we pray? Well, then sharing that I'm a Christian is a natural thing, and it's comfortable for everybody. But I think that if you're not in a situation like that, I think it'd be very inappropriate for me to, to say something religious like, by the way, I'm a Christian. I'm going to take care of you today. Well, that may not be met very well. You always have to be respectful of what the patient wants. And it really gets back to that whole idea. You're there for the patient, not the other way around. Right. What other things have we not talked about that have been important to you in the writing of this book and that you, you would like listeners to be aware of as we kind of wrap up here? Oh, gosh. You know, there's a lot of misconceptions of healthcare professionals and a lot of misconceptions of physicians. A lot of people are intimidated by physicians, either because they look at the educational level or the responsibilities that they carry. And I would like people to finish this book and look at us as just like them. We all have the same fears. We have the same aspirations, the same motivations. We're all put together the same way. And we all share this human bond. And we are as frail and fragile as everybody. I would like them to be able to rec reflect upon their own life, realize that we're not here forever, and that. It really does matter what we do today. As I say in the epilogue, that every day is important because we're trading a day of our life for that. That's a high price we pay. And the challenge is to live that day as if our life depended on it. David Alfrey, anesthesiologist, physician, author, and test pilot, even though <laughs> you're wedded to the submarine. Thank you yes. for sharing your insights and wisdom with listeners of Right Medicine. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. If you'd like to connect with me or today's guest or access any of the resources we talked about, check out the show notes for this episode. They're on my website where you'll also find additional resources. Find the show notes at alexhausen.com forward slash write W-R-I-T-E dash medicine dash podcast. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe to the Write Medicine newsletter, where you'll find bi-weekly tips, tools and resources to help you create continuing medical education content with confidence. And thank you for listening today. Word of mouth is the most meaningful way we can help listeners find us and reach a wider audience. So please share this episode with a friend, a colleague or a client who might find the podcast helpful. 
And if you enjoy listening to the podcast, please write a favourable review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Or share your testimonial on the dedicated testimonial link, which is also in the show notes.